Number 161 was asked if we'd mark that. Not only are we happy to do that, but we'll certainly look forward to hymning a song, singing a song with that kind of title and with that kind of message a bit later in the service tonight. It was mentioned, I think, by Brother Lester at the close of the service this morning, how that we'd continue our series of studies this evening on that Old Testament major prophet of Ezekiel, the fourth of the major prophets. And in our study so far throughout the course of that book, we have so far discussed 21 of the chapters out of a 48-chapter book. And as we've looked at those chapters, we've been reminded on so many occasions about the completeness of God's knowledge and the greatness of His approach and the absolute surety of that which He has to say. It is tonight that we'll be able to review some of those matters, but see them from a rather different perspective. And it might be well to begin like this. Certainly, as you think about these first 21 chapters, we've seen everything from the person of Ezekiel to the characteristic of God's judgment to the greatness of God's judgment as expressed upon Zedekiah, even to the matter of the rather fantastic history lesson that God gave us last Sunday evening. As we've looked at all of those matters, we have been impressed, it would seem, with God's thorough knowledge. Israel was unable to hide anything from Him. He knew the very thoughts of their heart, the actions of their life. He knew the very character of the language that they utilized. Everything was known to Him. And in the degree of that knowledge, God now says judgment was coming upon this people. You'll notice as we come to the bottom of that tonight, our interest, our focus, our objective will be chapters 22 to 24. That will bring us in a way to a close of the first half of the book of Ezekiel. There have been those recognized of the fact that Ezekiel in his 48 chapters divides rather naturally into two parts. The first 24 chapters highlight the overview of God's judgment, the thoroughness of it, and the reason why it was coming. The last 24 chapters, chapters 25 to 48, highlight some other details, not the least of which will be issues concerning God's judgment on other nations, his characteristic of blessedness on the remnant that will return, and a rather exquisite description of a temple. We'll come to all of that in chapters 40 to 48, but that's still a few weeks away. As we come tonight to these chapters, chapters 22 to 24, it might be well to begin them then like this. What is it that we discover and find in the course of Ezekiel chapter 22? Please be turning there, if you would, with me as we reflect on at least a few of the main ideas found in that chapter, as well as later in the lesson to some of those chapters, namely the next two that follow. The highlight for this chapter has simply to be the word sin. As you read chapter 22, you are reminded about again the sins of Jerusalem. Picture the scene with me again as we've tried to do more than once in these studies so far. And again, as we have done before, maybe a picture is worth a thousand words. The top left-hand picture is the one to which I would direct your attention for the moment. Ezekiel was a man who loved his people. He knew that they were God's chosen people. He understood the fact that God had blessed upon them hundreds of years of prophets and history and kings, and they were directed in a special way because they were the ones through whom all nations of the earth would one day be blessed. Ezekiel loved these people. 
You can then imagine some of what must have raced across Ezekiel's mind as he had heard God speak about the judgment waiting them, how that the city was going to be burned and destroyed and ransacked, how that this people will be slain by the sword like we've seen in these chapters. You can then imagine that perhaps to Ezekiel's mind would come the question, but God, are they not your people? Do you not love them? Do you not appreciate in them the marvelous grace to bless all humanity? And you can almost hear Ezekiel say, Why, God, are you going to destroy them this way? The answer is the top left-hand slide. That's why Jerusalem had to be judged. That's why these problems were coming their way. That's why destruction was coming. They were guilty of sin. And thus, we've seen in this book so far that God has enumerated some of the sins of Jerusalem. As we continue in chapter 22, let's go back to that previous slide, if we might, and observe that God now provides a listing, an inspired listing of the sins of which Jerusalem was guilty. I'd invite you to notice as we select at least a few out of the list, and I've tried to highlight them for you on the slide. But Jerusalem, the very people who ought to have been knowledgeable of the law of God, the very people who ought to have been keenly devoted to His way, the very people who ought to have been more than any other people on earth, the ones directed to do the will of God, and yet they were guilty of shedding blood. In fact, shedding enormous amounts of it. As you read chapter 22, we each are reminded, I think, about how often God mentions that His people were guilty of shedding blood. Innocent blood. Blood for which there was no need for it to be shed. This was a people, a nation, Judah, that was living in the very center of having little respect for human life. They had their own children cast into a place. They gave them off to idols. They took the lives of other human beings... You and I know that as they shed blood in this way, God took notice of it. And in addition to that, you'll notice He mentioned again their givenness to idolatry. And He mentioned furthermore the characteristic of their disrespect for their parents. Indeed. We remember in the earlier days of the law of Moses, God had said that if a child were to curse father or mother, he's to be put to death. There was to be no toleration of injustice or disrespect to dad or mother we now find that one of the problems that was bringing difficulty in a societal way and one of the issues that was bringing such rank difficulty was disrespect to parents. God says for that reason, they have set light by father and mother. They consider with little emphasis and interest what dad or mother stand for. God took notice, didn't He? You'll notice beyond that mention is made, they were guilty of oppression. The very people of God guilty of oppression. When a stranger would come their way, they'd take advantage of him to benefit themselves. Sometimes, even with regard to widows and orphans, believe it or not, they would advantage themselves toward those who were in such dire circumstances. Again, God took notice. You'll notice, in addition to that, they were guilty of inhospitality. They didn't take care of the widows, the strangers, the orphans. In fact, they took care of themselves, as we'll find later in chapter 34 but they didn't take much care of those that were in need of help. We begin to see in the ancient era of Judah a people who had lost sight of what was so vital, so important, and they'd lost sight of their association to God. And in their failure to appreciate that, we next notice they despised the holy things of God. 
That's the very word that the Scripture uses. They despised the holy things of God. Those matters that God had set apart for His holiness and for His sanctification, they used it for their benefit. They didn't regard it as a holy thing. They failed to appreciate that it was sanctified. One of the specifics mentioned is the Sabbath. We each remember how that the Sabbath, and we shall see this in Leviticus 23, was an extraordinarily significant day of each week. It's not to say the other six days weren't important, but that one was special. They were to do no servile work that day. They were not to engage in any activity, but rather they were to not work because it was a day dedicated unto the holiness and sanctification of what God had set forth. It was extraordinarily meaningful. And yet God here says, My people have despised it. They've profaned it. They have not given it the characteristic that I had intended it. Can you imagine people who had the opportunity to be trained and schooled through the nature of prophets throughout the centuries, and yet they profane the Sabbath. May I say to you, that list quickly proceeds. This people were guilty of a number of sexually related sins, fornication, adultery, incest, just to name three. And as they were guilty of these things, we again find God knew it. Maybe they thought they could hide it, conceal it, or in some way keep it hidden, but it wasn't so. God knew it very well, didn't He? It is with that in mind that I would invite you to close that list. It is found in verses 4 to 12. God mentions this. When it came to justice, they were willing to take bribes. You could in fact buy your way out of difficulty if you just knew the right judge and knew the right money. Amazing, isn't it? For all those reasons, God now says to Ezekiel, here's why they're going to be destroyed. Ezekiel, you need to appreciate the fact they, though you love them, they're guilty of sin and they have little interest in the things of me any longer. We'll find later that God illustrates that in a somewhat remarkable fashion in this chapter and again in chapter 24. For right now, would you note with me, God says in verse 15 that these people is going to be scattered because of this. I'm going to scatter them among the heathen. I'm going to, in fact, allow them to be taken to places that they do not enjoy. And I'm going to do it because ultimately they're going to be purged from their sins. As you think about all the character of that, may I say the chapter rolls forward rather quickly. It does so beginning in verse number 17. God has another description for this people of Israel. These people of Judah... And that description you'll notice at the bottom of that slide. He describes them in a way in comparison to a kind of furnace. Think with me again about a picture. We had looked at it at least briefly a moment ago, that bottom right-hand side if you wish. Consider with me a very exceeding hot furnace. Now you and I know in our modern day that in furnaces like that, metallics are cleansed. You put in a kind of metal and the various things of lower boiling point are boiled away and you ultimately have pure silver or you have some other pure metal that you seek. We each know that sometimes that refuse that's, called, that's dragged off is called slag. Sometimes it's valuable for other things and sometimes it's fit for nothing to be thrown aside. May I say to you, God says that this people are going to be purified in a furnace. And it's going to be a furnace that I shall 
construct and a furnace that I shall set forth and they are going to be cast in there and I'm going to draw off the impurities just like you do to metals when you purify them in a furnace. We do learn then one additional interesting feature about this coming captivity. It was a time for them to be purified. God had sent them messengers and prophets and priests now for a long time and they were so unwilling to hear them God says, now I'm going to take matters into my hands. I'm going to send them away where they'll be taken away from these matters and they shall be purified whether they like it or not. Maybe that tells us again that just as we noted in our prayer earlier, our God rules in the kingdoms of men. He can raise nations up and He can cause them to fall. He can bring them to points of zenith and pinnacle or He can cast them afoot and lead them to nowhere productive. Our God is able to do that. We notice one more time that the furnace was now about to come their way. We'll notice again in a moment the timetable was fixed. If you would, look back again to that previous slide before we completely finish it. There was one other feature you find in verses 25 and 26 about the sin of which this people was guilty. I'd invite you to read with me as I read verse 26 in particular. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths and I am profaned among them. This people, especially you notice God says to Ezekiel, They've made no distinction between that which was holy and that which was unholy. They've made no difference between what was common and what was sanctified. If you pause to think with me, what a sore and severe description that is. A people who no longer knew the distinction between what God had sanctified and what He hadn't. We noticed that already in the Sabbath. They looked upon the Sabbath just like another day of the week when it was never so in the eyes of God. And you can imagine, if they looked on the Sabbath that way, how were they now looking on the various sacrifices God commanded? How were they looking on the various ordinances that God had commanded? They were putting no difference between what was common and what was not common. It is with that in mind, let's close that slide by asking are there not some tremendous warnings in that chapter for all of us and for the church of this modern era? Isn't it true that you and I are commanded to make a distinction between what's holy and what's not? We know God has set apart certain things and it must be viewed in a way that is not like any other activity. We know tonight we're assembled in such a time. We are not to treat a worship service just like a concert or a movie or something else because it's not the same and nowhere should it ever be. This is an especial time of dedication to the things of God in a way that truly is a fantastically important matter. When it comes to the other matters, no wonder then we have no mechanical instruments of music and worship. God never authorized it. And although that's fine to listen to in a car, I'm not in a car. And we are not engaged in those other secular activities. This is different. Isn't it true that that list could be extended almost indefinitely? No wonder then we see one final tragically sad observation. It's found in verse number 30. 
I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. You can almost imagine the sadness described in the voice of God by way of a statement like that. God, you'll notice in that verse says, I was waiting for somebody to plead to me on Israel's behalf. Somebody to stand before me and plead for them, but I didn't find any. There apparently was nobody praying for Judah. They didn't care anymore. They'd forgotten the source of their blessings. And they'd forgotten the one from whom it all had come. Sounds a a little bit like America today in a way, doesn't it? We too are a land blessed now over 235 years. And yet we know so many seemingly think our blessings have come from somewhere else. Some other source besides God and notice God's taking notice of what we're doing. Isn't it sad that all throughout the Bible we find that there were touched individuals who pleaded for God's people. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai and saw what the people were doing, and he broke the tablets, you remember later in chapter 32, he pleaded to God on their behalf. God was ready to destroy them then. Moses pleaded for them. He interceded for them. Later you'll notice another interesting scene when Abraham pleaded on behalf of Sodom. If I find 50 there, won't you spare it? What about 45? What about 40? 35, ultimately the number got all the way down to 10. Abraham loved the place. He didn't love the sin, but he loved those that were there enough to want it spared. Do we as a nation care enough to pray to God for America any longer? There used to be national days of prayer, and sometimes there still are. But may you and I hold up America in our prayers, praying for her, praying that she might have the light of integrity lit again within her, that she might again have the fervent, ardent desire to return to the kind of people that God could be proud of. Isn't it interesting that all things like that are found in Ezekiel chapter 22? One more time, you might notice the bottom left-hand picture. I drew two circles, one of them having the words holy and clean, the other unholy and unclean, and the people of that day should have been able to tell the difference and should have respected it, but they didn't. No wonder with those things in mind, we're ready to see chapter 23. Though chapter 23 is somewhat lengthier than chapter 22 was, nonetheless, the message is exceedingly clear. We shall not need to be overtly careful in taking so much time with it. The basic story is this. God tells the record of two sisters. In fact, that encompasses almost the whole chapter, the record of these two sisters. However, it's not sisters of which one should be proud. It was shameless sisters, sisters that were given to the following. First, let's note their names. As God makes note of these sisters, the older sister was named Ahola. And that word, as you can see, literally means her own tent. You'll notice in verses 4 and 5, we are identified. We're told who this sister was. The older sister was Samaria. That is to say, the northern kingdom of the people of God. Then we come to the southern kingdom, the younger sister. We notice her name was Aholabah. You'll notice that word simply means a woman of the tent. And one more time, we're told who the younger sister is. It's Jerusalem. 
It's the very southern kingdom of God. And so these two wicked sisters, one of them representative of the northern kingdom, one representative of the southern kingdom, and God proceeds one by one to list the activities of which these two sisters were guilty. To be very blunt about it, they were prostitutes. And not just any prostitute. They openly looked for those that would be happy for their services. They openly pursued various and sundry nations with whom they could share their wares. We notice in the list is Assyria, Babylon, Ezekiel, or rather Egypt and some others. And time and again we find God so sorely displeased with them. These people should have been mine. I bought them. I gave them the land. I gave them their laws. I gave them their government. And I was far better to them than many times they deserved. They were my people. And I loved them. I was to them a faithful husband. And look what they've done to me. They have played the prostitute with every surrounding nation. They followed their idols. They've gone to them for help when they wouldn't come to me. You can almost hear God's sadness. As he described, Ezekiel, this is what this people has done. You'll notice among those other things, this people, these these two sisters, they dressed themselves royally, but they acted with such shame. In their royal apparel and their characteristic of their activities, you'll notice God now says very clearly to them, you do know, Ezekiel, what happened to the older sister we again have to remind ourselves of the history. Given that that older sister was Samaria, you and I should remember that 132 years prior to the very chapter in which we're reading, God had already destroyed Samaria. Assyria came and the very ones with whom she had been so interested, God let that nation destroy her. God now says to Jerusalem, guess what? You as the younger sister and the same thing is going to happen to you. The same thing. And it's going to happen in less than three years. Can you imagine the terror, the tragedy, the sadness and the sorrow when God now says, that cup off which the older sister had drunk, you're going to drink of it even deeper than she did. In fact, as you read through the chapter, chapter 23, you find the sadness heaped upon language that describes the tragedy of what these two sisters had done. I would use that thought to bring you to the bottom of that slide. When chapter 23 indeed is one of the most disgusting chapters as it relates to sin anywhere in the Old Testament. Absolutely disgusting. Doesn't that remind you and me about what sin really is? Though the devil can make it look attractive and though he can make it look appealing and sometimes even glorious... All the while, it leads to the doom and ruin of your soul and mine. It leads to separation from God. It leads to what this chapter unfolds. Oh, how sin should never be looked upon any differently than that. For those reasons, let's close that chapter and perhaps reflect on this thought. What a sad end to a people that had such promise, such potential, such opportunity, and they were going to end like this. Isn't it always the case when one lives beneath his privileges, when one takes what God has given and treats it with such disrespect and maybe looks upon it with mocking character? Notice that's what was going to happen to the younger sister. God did say, didn't He, in Psalm 9 verse 17, that any nation that forgets Him was going to be destroyed. 
any nation. In Proverbs 14.34, aren't we told that righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is reproached to any people? And with that, we thunderously arrive at chapter 24. This chapter, the last one for our consideration this evening, brings us to two quick ideas, one of which is a boiling pot, another of which is the very wife of Ezekiel. As we find them mentioned in this chapter, and as we find them, in fact, presented in ways that were exceedingly valuable, we shall find the lessons still very important even to you and me today. This chapter, again, interesting among other reasons for the fact that it gives us a date. The opening verse of the chapter tells us, In the ninth year, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying... We've seen that a few times in the book where Ezekiel will date that which is the oracle that he presents. And again, it happens here. And by the fact that he says it's the ninth year, we know now that we're less than three years from the destruction. We're now about the year 589 B.C., less than three years. The Babylonian army will come from the north. Less than three years, that mighty and powerful enemy will arrive and Jerusalem will be besieged. The temple will be burned, 2 Kings 25, 9. And we know the people will be hauled off into captivity. Many of them will be killed. May I say that as you look at that thought, something else is fascinatingly given in verse 2. Son of man, write thee the name of the day, even of this same day. The king of Babylon set himself against Jerusalem this same day. You and I are told this was the very day, the day... This ninth year, tenth month, tenth day of the month was the very day that the Babylonian monarch Nebuchadnezzar made his final decision to attack Jerusalem. It happened on this day. You can still imagine though, many of the people of Judah were thinking, Jerusalem will be spared. God will never let her be destroyed. He will always protect His temple. You can just hear Ezekiel saying, I'm telling you, Nebuchadnezzar has marked down today. He's made his mind up and he's on his way. Let's see how the rest of the chapter unfolds. It's time for that boiling pot. You'll notice again that maybe a picture is somewhat helpful. At the top, you'll notice an exceedingly prepared pot. You'll notice that God tells Ezekiel to do the very, this very thing. I'd invite you to perhaps think about that as I read two verses. Verses 3 and 4 of Ezekiel 24. And utter a parable unto the rebellious house, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Set on a pot, set it on, and also pour water into it. Gather the pieces thereof into it, even every good piece. The thigh and the shoulder fill it with the choice bones. God tells Ezekiel, You prepare you a pot. You pour water in it. You set it on fire, and you allow that heat to bring that water to a boil. Furthermore, you put into it the choice pieces of an animal. As you do that, also you put some of the bones of that animal on the actual fire beneath the pot. Make sure you put everything in place. As that pot is prepared and the water is brought to a boil, you can imagine the people as they would ask, Ezekiel, what are you doing? What does this boiling pot mean? The chapter goes on to describe there was something interesting. The pot was a rusty pot. In other words, there were impurities and contamination in the pot. Again, it was 
covered over with rust interior to it. And God says that rust is still there even when the water is brought to a boil. It's just that the rust particles are in the boiling water now. God says that rust is like the sin of my people. It's still there. The boiling water is not going to remove it. You'll notice that one interesting thing as you look at all of that, God says, in the very same way, I'm going to light a fire and put it under my people. Babylon is coming. And I'm going to light them and put a fire underneath them, but the fire that I will prepare will be far greater, far more intense, and far more powerful, and it will purge them. Another picture of the coming destruction, this boiling water pot. You'll notice in particular in verse 13, he says, "...in thy filthiness is lewdness, because I have purged thee, and thou wast not purged. Thou shalt not be purged from thy filthiness any more, till I have caused my fury to rest upon thee." God's fury was now going to reach an end when again in less than three years the enemy was coming. And the enemy was going to be victorious. Is it any wonder then in verse 14 God says, I will not spare you. God says, I am not going to change my mind at this point. You'll notice in previous years when Jeremiah proclaimed and preached, he urged them to repent because there was still an opportunity for them to change their behavior and God to change His mind. God now says to Ezekiel, My long sufferingness has run out. I'm not going to change my mind now. The enemy is coming. There's nothing you can do about it. Think about that with me. Could it be today that a nation could stoop to such sin, such ungodliness, such iniquity, that God drops the gauntlet and says, Even if you repent, I'm not changing my mind now. Sure, that could happen. Can you and I, and I not see that if what this describes happened to Jerusalem, could it be that America should be careful, fervent, interested in the things of holiness? The answer is obviously yes. And with that, we come to the latter part of chapter 24. And you'll notice in it we find another lesson highlighted by the bottom three pictures on that slide. While those pictures are before you, let me describe the scene beginning in verse number 15. God makes this observation. He gives to Ezekiel a very special and pointed message. He says, Ezekiel, your wife is going to die. Before you go much further with that, I'd invite you to think with me about something. Ezekiel was laboring amongst a people that was hard-hearted and rebellious a people who often did not have any interest in what he had to say. His wife was no doubt a source of support, encouragement, and a source of great interest in his going on to be faithful to the things of God. And now God says, Ezekiel, your wife, your wife is going to die. You'll notice in verses 16 and following, when this message is delivered to Ezekiel, it's phrased in the following way. He says, I'll take from thee the desire of thine eyes. We do not know what his wife's name was, but we do know that she was the desire of his eyes. She was the prize, if you will, of his life. She was the one to whom he looked to for encouragement, edification that you and I have mentioned previously. She was an extraordinarily special woman to him. And God says that she was going to be taken. We do not know if she had been sick for quite some time. Perhaps so. 
We do not know if it was going to be a sudden accident. We simply are not told. But we have the following statement. In verse 16, God says, Son of man, behold, I take away from thee the desire of thine eyes with a stroke. Yet neither shalt thou mourn nor weep, neither shall thy tears run down. Ezekiel was told when she passes, don't you shed any tears and don't you mourn. Here we find God commanding Ezekiel, the fiery prophet, not to mourn over the passing of his wife. In the next verse, he went on to say, Forbear to cry, make no mourning for the dead, bind thy tire of thine head upon thee, and put on thy shoes upon thy feet, and cover not thy lips, and eat not the bread of men. Ezekiel was told to engage in this activity in which, even upon her passing, he was not to shed forth elements in mourning. You and I might immediately ask, why? Thankfully, the rest of the chapter will tell us. You'll notice particularly in verse, 34, verse 24, this was a sign to the people. When the people saw Ezekiel, they would naturally have expected him to mourn. They would naturally have expected him to be given to tears over the passing of his wife. And it led them to ask Ezekiel, why? Are you acting in this unusual way? You'll notice God through Ezekiel says, in the very same way, something like this is going to happen to my people, the younger sister. You and I can imagine how it will be. When finally the, Babylon, the Babylonian army came, the difficulties that surrounded it, their destruction of the city, on that occasion again, there would be no crying or mourning because the people would be slaughtered and killed. And they'd be hauled off into captivity, the ones that were allowed to live. You'll notice God says, the very same thing that I've commanded of Ezekiel, that's going to happen to you. It's not that your spouse particularly, but in fact, many of you will be killed. Many of you will be hauled off again, the ones that survive. But there will be no occasion for mourning or tears. You won't have an occasion for it. Does that not picture again the hardness that was going to come in less than three years? All those difficulties bring us back to those bottom slides. You see, at the bottom left, a man mourning. God told Ezekiel not to do that. On the bottom right, a man mourning over the past, of the past fact of his wife. God told Ezekiel not to do this. That's the point of the middle one, the symbol no. May I say, as we close that point and come to the ending of chapter 24, it's also the way to end our lesson. And it also prepares us for what the next eight chapters will be, chapters 25 to 32. Tonight, as we have looked at these chapters, we've seen lessons that begin like this, chapter 22. The sin of Jerusalem and the fact that judgment was coming. In chapter 23, we saw two sisters and how despicable they were. It was God's people. And now in chapter 24, we've seen a boiling pot in Ezekiel's wife all of which paint a dramatic and vivid picture about the place that Jerusalem found herself in and where she soon was going. I hope that we can learn a personal lesson about the opportunities we have and being thankful for the faithfulness God has allowed us to enjoy, but to strive always to maintain faithfulness until death. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life, Revelation 2.10. As we close this lesson this evening, the invitation is extended. As you and I analyze our lives and our thoughts and our deeds, where do you and I stand before the judgment bar of God?
Is all well with your soul and mine? Or are there problems and difficulties? Is there separation and distance? If it is the latter, may we make it right tonight. This hymn that Jeff has selected, we're going to stand at a moment and sing. And if you've never become a member of the body of Christ, you've never initially had your sins washed away in the blood of Christ, why not attend to that need tonight? Jesus died that you might live. He gave His life that you might be saved. He established the church that you might be a part of it. Don't you want to do that? Believe Jesus with all your heart to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as a Son of God and be baptized. If we could be of help to you tonight, don't delay. If you have begun that walk with the Master at some point, but no longer are faithful to that calling, why not come back to your first love? Allow us to pray for you and with you, and we'd be delighted to do that. If either of these things might be the need of your heart and life tonight, don't delay, but why not come even now while together we stand and while we sing?